In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Today's Gospel reading, which is the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John in its entirety, is like last week's Gospel, John chapter 4, in that it is immensely rich. It's full of savory theological meat for which we should hunger and on which we should chew, that is, meditate upon. So let us get right into it without introduction. Uh, were this sermon an episode on Netflix, we're going to go ahead and click the skip intro button. Uh, five points this morning. Number one, all human beings, save Christ himself, are in need of illumination. Two, suffering is not necessarily a consequence of sinfulness. Number three, the work of God, the Father through the Son in the Spirit, is a work of new creation. Number four, to see one must be blind, and this is the beginning of repentance. And finally, number five, probably shouldn't give this to you. You guys are just going to check out and think about what to eat now. Number five, repentance is the antecedent of joy, and joy is the result of repentance. Number one, all human beings, save Christ himself, are in need of illumination. At the allegorical level of interpretation, the blind man is all of us. The blind man is all of us. We all need to be illumined. We all need to be saved. We are born in a state where we are deprived of the grace of God deprived of participation in the one who is light and life. All except Christ, who is himself the light, are blind. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans. And even before the fall, or falls of man, because there's multiple falls. There's what happens in the garden. There's what happens with the flood. There's what happens at the Tower of Babel. But even before that first fall, Adam and Eve were in need of saving. St. Irenaeus makes this clear. If we understand, and that may be, well, why did they need to be saved? They had not sinned. If we understand salvation aright, that salvation is at its heart union with God. They were indeed in need of saving. You see, Adam and Eve, they were created in a state of innocence. They were in fellowship with Almighty God, but they had not yet been perfected. They had not yet, to the extent to which they were created to be, become partakers of the divine nature. Number two, suffering is not necessarily a consequence of sinfulness. It's not necessarily a consequence of sinfulness. Now, it can be, but that should not be our default assumption and or interpretation of our own suffering or that of others. But that your suffering was directly proportional to your sinfulness was a common view among the ancients. And this is borne out in several places in Scripture. And it seems to me a common view 
among our contemporaries. In verse 2 of John chapter 9, it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Teacher, this is terrible. Who screwed up? Whose fault is it? Is it his? His family's? Now, suffering can be a result of our own actions, of our own sinfulness, of our own uh, idiocy. If one of you were to rob a bank and you were to get arrested and then I were to come visit you in jail, which I would, (laughs) please don't say to me, Father Matt, why is this happening? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it happened because you robbed a bank. That's why you're in jail. But even when we do suffer on account of our own sinfulness, on account of our own poor choices, your suffering is not directly proportional to your sinfulness. Thanks be to God. The Lord has not treated us as our sins deserve. And it is likely as in the case of the man born blind, that your suffering has nothing to do whatsoever with your personal holiness or lack thereof. We we have to let go, if we can, of this idea that God is out to get us. God is omnipotent. If he were out to get you, he would have got you. In the book of Job we see the opposite of the disciples' view, the Pharisees' view, right? His Job's suffering was meted out not in proportion to his sinfulness, but in proportion to his saintliness. Also, we see that Job's friends share the same outlook on the world as the disciples did at the beginning of John chapter 9, and as the Pharisees do throughout the text. I mean, half of the book of Job, if you read it, is his friends, and they're not very good friends, trying to convince him to confess this deep, dark sin, which must be, in their view, the cause of all his suffering. But what does Jesus say? And perhaps some of us the more scrupulous among us, really need to hear John chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. When you suffer, is it on account of your sinfulness? Probably not. Unless you can draw a straight line between action and consequence. I robbed a bank, therefore I'm in jail, now I'm suffering. Stop thinking that way. Is your suffering on account of your saintliness? Perhaps. I would never presume that for myself, but maybe. Is your suffering, no matter the proximate cause of it, 
so that the work of God can be wrought in you and the works of God revealed in and through you? 100% yes. Number three, the work of God through the Son in the Spirit here in John chapter 9 is a work of new creation. Jesus here in this text does not heal with a word, that is, by speaking, which is his want, but by rubbing a mixture of spit and earth in the blind, man eye, blind, man eyes, blind man's eyes, we're going to get it the third time, and tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, an, an image of baptism, no doubt. I've said countless times in the short history of our church that the Gospel of John is a retelling of the book of Genesis. It, it, it's a reboot of the Genesis story. If someone were to ask you on the street, and I, I doubt this is the kind of question you're going to get asked on the street in today's world, what is the Gospel of John about? You can sum it up in two words, two words new creation. Thus, Jesus' use of dirt and water, spit, the latter being an image of the Spirit, harkens back to God's formation of Adam from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2-7. Father John Bear, uh, drawing on Irenaeus, his summary of Irenaeus here in Against Heresies, Book 5, uh, is wonderful. He, he writes this. It's a, a little lengthy, but worth it. He says, St. Irenaeus points out that this action of Christ, talking about him healing the blind man, is the same as our original formation or creation. In Genesis, the hand of God mixed his breath, the spirit, with the earth to form a living human being. The work of God, Irenaeus says, is making human beings. Everything else in Genesis is created by word, by a command. But then God says, let us make man a human being in our image. So, Irenaeus concludes, God omitted to form the blind man's eyes in the womb so that, as the gospel puts it, the work of God might be made manifest in him. God's work is making human beings, and specifically human beings in his image, after the stature of Christ himself. In other words, the point of this passage is not about the providence of God or his arbitrariness, but rather to remind us that we are clay in the potter's hands. We are being made, being fashioned, molded, so that we might conform to the image of God so that we might also become true human beings. And we are reminded that we can only do this by the grace of the Spirit, as water added to our dry earth, our brittle selves, so that we can be malleable, responsive to his hands. For to see... One must be blind. And this is the beginning of repentance 
chapter 9 concludes with our Lord saying to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. John writes in his first epistle, and you heard it during the entrance rite, and it's perhaps inspired by or directly related to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees here in John 9. And if you've been praying the office during Lent, you'll immediately recognize it. He writes, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot be found. We cannot be healed. We cannot see unless we first recognize that we are lost, that we are sick, that we are blind. Have you ever in your life, maybe in your family, maybe in your job, tried to help someone who doesn't think he or she needs help. Can you help them? You cannot. Repentance, that is leaving the wrong path and starting on the right one, begins with the recognition that we are on the former, that we have, in fact, lost our way. One who thinks himself in need of no help cannot be helped. One who does not need to be saved cannot be. Fifth and finally, repentance is the antecedent to joy, and joy is the result of repentance. Uh, This final point arises not directly out of John 9, though it's related, but it's an acknowledgement of our place in the Christian year, our place in Lent. Today is the fourth Sunday of Lent called Latere Sunday, that is Rejoice Sunday. And perhaps you've noticed already that for a Lenten service, it's been a little bit more festive, music a little brighter, louder, uh, the, the vestments a little bit nicer, the ornamentation, because it's Rejoice Sunday. And all that's on purpose. You know, today is a sort of uh, breather, if you will, before we enter the most intense and solemn weeks of the Christian year. And so today we rejoice. Well, why? We rejoice because we draw near to the day of our salvation. We draw near to the celebration of Easter, to the celebration of Pascha, to the celebration of the Lord's resurrection. We rejoice because... If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's cause for rejoicing. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. We rejoice because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We rejoice because the hands of Christ are upon our eyes. We rejoice because in this season of repentance, we know 
that the arms of the Father are wide open and ready to receive us back home again. And on this Rejoice Sunday, we should remember that when we repent, whether in Lent or in Eastertide or any other season of the Christian year, that there is rejoicing, that there is angelic rejoicing, that there is heavenly rejoicing, that there is divine rejoicing. In Luke chapter 15, there's a triplet of famous parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Or you may know it as the parable of the prodigal son. And in those parables, there is rejoicing. Because when we turn from our sins, when we are healed, when we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, when we finally get it, so to speak, the heavenly host rejoice. The church rejoices. Who is it looking for the lost coin in Luke 15? It's a woman. When you see a woman in a parable that represents the people of God. The church. And, and so when, when a sinner repents, the church is to rejoice. How can we not? Did we not rejoice when we went from being blind to seeing? And so when, when you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sins, when you turn away from the ways of this world to the ways of Christ, there's heavenly rejoicing. There's rejoicing in the church, whether above the earth or on the earth. The church rejoices. And your Father in heaven rejoices. When you walk the road to repentance, it's very important the, de the details in that parable. The Father runs out to greet you. He runs out to greet you. He throws a party, if you will, a feast, this feast. So brothers and sisters, let us give thanks. Let us rejoice that the Lord has not left us to wander in darkness, that by water and the Spirit he has opened our eyes. Let us rejoice that God is for us, that he has made us for himself, that he, even in our suffering, is fashioning us into his likeness. Let us rejoice and not take for granted that he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust and that by the Spirit, he patiently molds us into the likeness of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be all honor, glory, and praise, world without end. Amen.